Welcome to Trail Tales ARP, a running podcast for every type of runner, with Sean Soban and Russell the Runner. Run wild. I love the chase and the hunt, and I set the pace when I'm running. I always take what I want, and I always give it 100. Don't need a bank, no, I'm funded. Play the game like it's nothing. I'm always thankful for something. Don't take for granted, stay humble. Now wake up! It's time to look at the enemy. Look in the mirror, where he is no friend of me. It's not working now, maybe it's the chemistry. It's time to break up, so I can make a better me. Trail Tales ARP family. It's Russell the Runner here, and we have an incredibly special guest on the show today. Morgan Schick is joining us. Morgan is a seasoned ultramarathon runner with over 50 ultramarathons in his life, including 11 100-mile ultramarathons journeys. We're incredibly lucky to have Morgan on the show today, and so Welcome, Morgan. How are you doing? <laughs> great. How you doing, Russ? I'm doing well, thanks. It's it's great to have you on the show today, and and your your journey is incredible, and we're we're lucky to have you on the show. Well, I'm just another runner, but uh, no, I'm sure uh, I've got stories to tell from the many races and things as everyone does as they do these things. So, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of people you meet at these races who I'm sure you'll want to talk to, and uh, yeah, I'm glad to finally hook up and chat with you. Definitely. We're happy to have you on the show, Morgan. So my first question from you is, so, I mean, I'm always curious to hear from the beginning, how did you find running and discover a passion for this beautiful sport? Well, how did it start for me? I hated running growing up. I was always, uh, I was always one of the faster kids, even through high school. And then I still play soccer and uh, hated endurance running. I remember in gym class, we would have to do this loop around the neighborhood. And it was a little stream we would stop at and take a shortcut and splash water on our face so it looked like we'd sweat. And uh, I hated it. And it wasn't until, uh, I guess, early 30s to mid 30s, I started getting into running a little bit. And I always ran a little bit just because I played soccer. So I had this little 12 minute loop I would do around the neighborhood. And then what's actually started me running, I got my first iPod way back in like 2006 or seven or something. And I hadn't run with music ever. And uh, I loved it. I did a little 4K loop and I had fun. So then I did 6K a few days later. And then that weekend, we were going up to a cottage. I brought the iPod and I did a 10K and I no GPS back then. I looked at it on a map ahead of time. Then the next day I did 12K. And then so by then I was starting to enjoy it just instead of running in silence, having music with me. And that's what kind of started me doing these little runs. So then I started looking into how to run properly and improve. And most of them had the general rule of increasing by no more than 10% a week. So the following weekends, I basically followed that. I did 15K. And then the next weekend, I did 18K. The next weekend, I did 21. So I progressed probably a little too quickly because right after that, I did a 21, then I did 25, then I did 30K the following weekend. This is all consecutive weekends after never really running much. And then the weekend after that, I did a 35K. And by that was December and it was all on icy sidewalks and I couldn't move the next day. And uh, so I wound up um, my IT band, pulling my IT band. And then so that took me out for like about two months. I couldn't run after that. 
So I increased it way too quickly. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. So then I kind of took a step back and started to do a lot of reading and learn how to, you know, improve myself uh, at a better pace and uh, knowing that I would eventually do something I didn't know. But yeah, eventually I started, it was all road runs at this point. So then I started to uh, plan to do a marathon. So this is way back in, good Lord, 2008, I was planning to do a marathon. And then um, it didn't happen that fall. There was one I was planning to do. And we had a family commitment and I couldn't do the one I was training for. And then so I wound up uh, going out one night and uh, for a little 12K run. It was like 10.30 p.m. I went out for a little run, brought two little bottles with me and a $5 bill. And then when I did a 6K turnaround on my way back, I thought I felt like I wanted to keep going a bit more. So then I went past my neighborhood, did another loop around somewhere else on the way back, back into my neighborhood. You know what? I want to do a little bit more. So I did that again. Anyway, I kept doing that. And then... By 3.30 a.m., I finally head home, and all I'd done is roads at this point, so I knew which roads I was on. I was doing the math in my head, and then I thought, uh, this is pretty close to a marathon. I'd never done a marathon before. So as I came into my neighborhood, I thought about it, and I was probably just under a marathon, so I started zigzagging through all these streets in my neighborhood instead of heading home. So I got home, still 3.30 in the morning, turned on the computer, put it all into Google Maps, and it added up to 42.5 kilometers. <laughs> So I was glad I didn't stop like a kilometer early or something. So at that point, I knew I could do a marathon. It was very slow, but I think it was about five hours. So then I really trained. And then uh, it was the next year, I guess I got into running. I did uh, Around the Bay and I did Mississauga Marathon. And that was my first marathon. And my plan was to basically do that and then decide if I enjoyed it. Do I want to see if I can maybe get to Boston one day? But during that race, I got to the halfway point and I was at one hour, 33 minutes. So I'm doing the math. I needed 3.15 to qualify for Boston. And so I thought if I can maintain that pace or even close to it, I still have another 10-minute cushion on top of that. So I did. I just kept going and pushing and cramped up near the end and squeezed in in 3.13. So uh, yeah, I went to Boston the next year. And uh, by then, I'd still only been doing roads. And I started by now reading. I'm starting to read a few ultra books now. I think I read Dean Carnazes at that point. And that, that's kind of got me hooked on trying to do something longer. So at this point, I'd done one marathon. I did around the bay. And uh, so then I'm starting to think about doing an ultra. So similar to my first marathon, I was looking at doing um, a Niagara marathon because that was all on paved paths. I had never run on a trail still. And uh, my kids both had soccer that weekend, and I coached both of their teams. And so I had to pull out and I couldn't do it. So the next day I went and ran 50K by myself. So now I knew I could do 50K. So then, long story short, I finally, that fall, it was my first ultra was uh, Vulture Bait, which doesn't exist. I think they might have it under a different name now in London, Ontario. So I did 50K at Vulture Bait that fall and met lots of cool people, still in touch with a bunch of them. That was back in 2009. And... Uh, and after that, I was kind of hooked. So I did Boston in the spring of 2010. So right after that, my first, I guess, Vulture Base, the first ultra, but then I did 50 miles at uh, Sulphur Springs in May. And uh, I was blown away because Sulphur is 20 kilometer loops. And so I did the four loops. And then at the end, all the people who were doing 100 are still going. And I couldn't believe it. And so I waited around and wanted to see the 100 mile finisher. So I met tons of cool people, just hung out for the afternoon and into the evening. And then uh, it was around midnight, I think, the winter was coming in, and I had gone gone to the washroom, and I hear the bell ringing, and I missed the guy that I've been waiting for coming in to win the race. So, oh, well, 
but that had me hooked. And then I did a bunch more ultras that year and I loved it. And uh, that was it. I did those two marathons and then I wound up doing one more marathon years later while I was in the Bahamas, there happened to be a marathon on. And so other than that, it's been all ultras since then and trails. And so I really loved uh, running on the trails much more so than the, uh, than the roads and, and just the community. If, if you've done marathons, you know what it's like with, you know, thousands of people running in silence. And then you go to these ultra events and it's tons of people meeting each other, running with each other and chatting. It's a very different atmosphere. So, so I was hooked. I started doing them, I guess, in 2010. I did it about seven, I think. And then uh, that was it every year after that, pretty much. I'm completely fascinated by how you started getting into running by building from 4k to 6k to 10k all the way up to 35k not that many weekends later and then learning a very critical lesson i i have so many questions and and comments regarding everything that you just said it, it's phenomenal but so i think most pressing tell us about the boston marathon so many people dream I, I actually have a few friends who dream of qualifying for the boston marathon tell tell us yeah. about that experience and 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 how much it meant to you to be able to, to be in that iconic event yeah no it was really cool i mean it was almost as sad to say but almost anticlimactic getting into it because my first marathon i was going to use that to gauge whether i could ever qualify for it you know, I hadn't been training for years building up to it. It just, it, it was a surprise that I got in. And so it was a nice surprise. Uh, but yeah, so I went and did it. And uh, the actual event, it's obviously different than doing any kind of ultra with the, I think it was 29,000 people or whatever it was that year. That was in 2010. And uh, yeah, so, so many people, but it's just an awesome atmosphere with all those people. The jets fly by at the start and uh, the entire course is lined with people the whole way. And uh, it's a really exciting experience. It's long because you got this expo the day before. I was exhausted by the time the race started. Uh, you're walking around too much the day before. And then that morning, you got to take buses out to the start. So you got to start hours and hours before the race. And then I read a bunch of tips. People said to bring newspaper. Not that there's many newspapers anymore, but bring newspaper and a shopping bag to put them in. You can sit on that because you got to sit in a field for hours waiting and but uh, the actual experience, yeah, I brought a buddy along who came with me to cheer me on. And uh, yeah, I went out. I didn't have a great race. I went out way too fast. And you just get caught up in the excitement. <laughs> and uh, I learned some valuable nutrition lessons. I still, I'd just gotten into running. I didn't know anything about taking gels and, uh, you know, and I take salt pills now, things like that. Because I've always had cramping issues. Even playing soccer, I had cramping issues. And so... When I got uh, near Heartbreak Hill, I just, everything cramped up and I came to a stop and the person behind me ran right into me. And then after that, it would stop and go just cramping over and over. And then near the end, I get to the final turn and I'm confident I'm just going to keep it at a steady pace and get to the finish. And then I can hear my buddy in the crowd who came with me, hey, Mo, and I turned to look. And as I twisted, everything cramped up, my hamstrings, my calves, everything. So Anyway, I hobbled to the finish and got it done, and uh, it was an okay time, but uh, not uh, not as fast as my qualifier was, that's for sure, but great experience going there, and then, you know, I might go back eventually, but I haven't done enough roads and maintained speed enough to qualify anytime soon, so maybe down the road, but I'm a few age groups up. I was 36 at the time, so I'm a few age groups ahead of that now, so you never know. I might go back someday, but uh, too many ultras on my, on my to-do list to, to worry about it for now. 
Definitely. Ultra marathoning is the primary focus now. And so it's amazing that you qualified by two minutes and then the day at Boston didn't go the way that you wanted to, obviously with Grand. (laughs) But once you're, from my perspective, once you're in Boston, it's not so much about the time, but it's about the experience. Absolutely. Yeah. It was really cool being there. You meet all sorts of people and a lot of fast people. And uh, no, just getting there. I mean, the, the tough part is qualifying. And so I, I trained a lot harder qualifying than I did uh, for the actual race. And I was actually doing a running streak back in 2008. I hadn't been running that much near the end of the year. And so the Mississauga Marathon that I was going to use to qualify it was in May. And so I thought I'm going to try running every day from January 1st until then. And so I did a minimum 5K a day starting January 1st. And then uh, I would do, you know, midweek, do a few longer runs and then a long run on Sunday. And then any other day I did 5K. So I considered the 5Ks as my day off. And so I did those every day. And then once I got to around the Bay, which was uh, in late March, um, that was tough because I did 5K the day before. And then I was so sore after around the Bay. Uh, For anyone who's not familiar with it in Ontario, sorry, around the Bay is uh, the oldest road race actually in North America, 30K road race around the Bay in Hamilton. And so the next day I could barely move, but I did my 5K and kept going. And then I get to uh, the day before the Mississauga Marathon. And so rather than taper or anything, I still wanted to keep my streak going. I wasn't sure how long I wanted to do it now. So I got up, I did a very light 2K, and then that afternoon did a very light 3K, and then did the marathon the next day. So had I not done that, maybe the time would have been better, or maybe it helped. I don't know. So then I wound up a week the day after the marathon was a horrible 5k and i wasn't sure how much longer i didn't even want to do it anymore to be honest but i kept doing it and then i had my first soccer game of the season ran that morning played soccer and then i should probably stop the following week still doing the streak i was playing soccer and i pulled my hamstring and uh then that was enough so i finally stopped my streak at like 143 days the next day so but I'll never know whether whether the streak really helped my time i think it did or whether you know maybe tapering and ending it a few days before the marathon would have helped who knows but it all worked out so from my perspective regardless of whether it helped or hindered it's an amazing streak clearly morgan and you'll you'll be able to hold on to that streak forever and know that you ran for 143 straight days of at least five kilometers not actually and many it was 130 days i did the same thing in 2019 before cruel jewel and that was 143 okay so i thought i tried replicating different streaks uh same thing i did in cruel jewel in 2019 so that's in may and that's a 100 mile race i think it's 106 i believe is the exact distance but hilliest race i've ever done that's 31,000 feet of elevation change so mistake there i didn't train for the hills properly i should have done more hills but I wanted to do the streak again to see if that would work. So that time I started it on Christmas Day, so a week before January 1st. And then same thing, I did 5K every day up until May. And so that was, yeah, 143 days. Then including the race, which spanned over three days, 146 days, I guess, total. But yeah, a lot of them were just little 5Ks to keep the streak going. But then long run on Sunday and some midweek do some longer runs. But yeah, the, the issue with that one was because it's, my focus was on my silly streak, some days I should have maybe just done hills and not worried about doing my streak. And I didn't do enough hills, but whatever, I got it done. So no, it, it worked out in the end. You most definitely did. They're both incredible streaks, especially with 
regards to the five kilometer runs after the long runs on the weekends. I mean, that requires some incredible discipline and you did that for an incredible amount of weeks. So anyway, let's jump into ultra marathoning. So you mentioned, so with regards to the sulfur springs, so your pre your first ultra was of course 50 K, which is typical for many ultra runners. But so from, from there, you you jumped up from 50k to 50 miles at sulfur yep. springs you went from 50k to just over 80k so yep. tell us about your preparation leading up to that first 50 miler and and how you were feeling at the start line and about the journey itself i didn't know what i was doing so I mean, so I'd done the 150k, everything else I knew about ultras, whatever I saw on the internet, I knew nothing. And so, yeah, so I doing that 50 mile, all I knew, I knew it was 20k loops. And I'd never been there or run there it was in, in Dundas Valley. So it's mostly, uh, it's a lot of gravel trail and then dirt trail, and there's no technical sections, um, some minor hills, nothing huge. And so I just wore, I didn't even have trail shoes, I wore road shoes. And which were fine, actually, because it didn't rain. So you actually were fine wearing road shoes there anyway. Um, and so what I didn't know was anything about nutrition, hydration and everything. Um, I just I bought a, a little hydration belt the year before when I was when I was doing that little uh, when I started running in a bit more each week, I never brought any water or anything with me. And then so when I built up to I think it was 21k, I noticed I was starting to get thirsty. And so when I did 25k, I brought a bottle of Gatorade in my hand. And then when I did the 30K, I finally bought this little fuel belt. So now I'm at Sulphur Springs. I think I still had the fuel belt, but what I did was I brought a giant cooler full of food and a lawn chair, and I left that at the start finish. So after 20K, I would sit down, I can't even tell you how long, uh, probably 20 minutes, I brought soup and all these cans of food. I didn't know, I had no idea how hungry I would be, what I would need to eat. And even at all the aid stations, like they're just full of junk food and everything. I would just stop and took my time didn't know what I was doing. And I took so long that people at aid stations were actually giving me their camera to take their picture of the team at the aid station. So I was hanging out chatting with everyone. And so I wound up finishing that uh, 10.02, 10 hours, two minutes. But when I look back, you know, after doing ultras years later and stuff, I probably wasted two hours at aid stations. And, you know, future races, 50 milers, I'm not even stopping and most of them are just grabbing and going. Here I was sitting down in my lawn chair, almost taking a nap, resting, because I didn't know what I was doing. But uh, I met a lot of cool people there that I'm still in touch with as well from, from that first one at Sulphur. But no, I was blown away by the community. And that's the first time I actually saw, because there's the 100 mile option, I saw people actually doing the 100 miles. And that really intrigued me. And uh, I thought it was almost silly the, how slow they were going. They're barely lifting their feet and and because they're running so efficiently. They're they're running at a slightly slower pace than we are doing the 50 milers. And then, you know, barely lifting their feet, saving energy. And uh, it was it's just even 50 miles to 100 miles is almost like a different sport the way the way it's run. And uh, anyway, it really intrigued me, but I had no idea what I was doing. So I, after that, I knew I wanted to do more of them as soon as I finished it. I mean, I. I was tired and at the end, but I, I hadn't paced myself right. I think I had more in the tank and uh, I knew I'd like to, you know, try to do more of these. So I wound up doing a few uh, 50 Ks that summer. And then I was, here's how I really got into ultras, I guess, was during that summer. I was, as usual, reading articles on the internet and stuff. And there was an article about uh, Hertz in Hawaii. And I was one of the 
toughest in the world. And I noticed the girl in the picture, Charlotte uh, Vassar Highly, probably butchered her name there. You know, Charlotte. And so she's I, I've uh, heard of Charlotte. Yes. So there's a picture of her and I've seen her at, at some of the races and, and it was a picture of her. Uh, not the most flattering picture at an aid station um, stuff in her face. And uh, anyway, so I'm looking at this race and uh, and I don't know what I was thinking. There's a lottery to get into it. And so at this point, I'd done 50 miles and that's it. And then I thought, oh, what the heck? I probably had a few beers in front of the computer, too. So if you put your name in the lottery, you get awarded, I think they're called Kewkey nuts or something. You can build more nuts. If you volunteer at the race, you get more. There's there's ways to build and increase your chances. And one of the ways was when you apply, you write a story, your running journey or whatever it is, what, uh, why you want to do the race, a mini essay almost. And that'll give you more points. I thought I'm good at telling stories and stuff. I'll put something in here. For the life of me, I couldn't find where to put it. Maybe I did have too many beers. I don't know. So all I did, I thought, oh, what are the chances anyway? I put my name in. So all I could do is put my name, my age, and I clicked that I'd never run 100 miles before. That's all they knew about me. And uh, I couldn't find anywhere else to add stuff to get more points or anything. Anyway, so I just let that go. And then I knew I wanted to do more ultras, though. So there was a 24-hour race, uh, Dirty Girls, which uh, isn't around anymore, up in Mansfield. And so I, that was my first night race. I thought I would try doing a night race. So I bought a headlamp and did that. It's 10K loops for 24 hours. And the lottery for Hertz was at 6 p.m. in Hawaii that night, which was midnight Eastern time. So while I was doing that 24-hour race, they were doing the lottery for Hertz. And so Charlotte was at the Dirty Girls. Um, she had a big race, I think a week or two after that. But she was doing six hours, and then she volunteered for the final 24 hours. And so after the race, in the morning, I went and checked my phone, and I would got in. And then so I went and mentioned it to Charlotte and she said, yeah, I didn't. And she was on the wait list, but she knew that I'd got in. And so she was great. She gave me all sorts of tips and stuff, uh, you know, for hundred miles, but specifically for Hurt. And uh, anyway, it turns out she did get off the wait list and got in. And then so Hurt was going to be my first hundred miler. And uh, being one of the toughest in the world, I thought that's probably not a great idea. So Dirty Girls was in August. I signed up for Halliburton. Uh, in 2010, I thought, let me do 100 miles there first, and that'll help me decide, you know, what I need to do to get through her. And once again, those pesky little kids, they both get their soccer final, they made it to their final on the weekend of Halliburton, and I'm coaching both their teams still. So I skipped Halliburton. So I wound up hurt was going to be my first 100 miler in January. And uh, so I did a few more races, uh, 50ks and stuff, and then started building up my training for her. And uh, Wound up doing that as my first 100 miler in uh, January. So between doing my 50K in the fall of 2009, and then it was about, what, 12, 13 months later, I guess, 14 months later, then I did my first 100 after building up for that summer. So I got into it pretty quick, I guess, really. But uh, yeah, her was great. Uh, not the best one to do for your first hundred probably i even had a few other runners suggest that i probably shouldn't be doing it because they only let i think it was 120 something people in at the time and uh i should probably let somebody else in who's actually going to do it and that that just offended me and maybe train harder so it's uh yeah it's uh it's a good first hundred it's beyond phenomenal, Morgan. I mean, how many people could say that their first 100-mile journey is one of the hardest in the world in the 100? I, I know that there's been some substantial athletes who have competed there. I know Kyle Curtin, who's won the Tahoe 200, would yeah. show up to the Hurt 100. David Goggins, which many people know about, and many He's other 
prominent athletes. So tell us about all of your preparation for an event of such a high magnitude of challenge and, and about the experience itself, because at times I'm sure during the hurt 100 there that probably at times it, it, it likely seemed that potentially all hope seems lost and, 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 and what did you find are the most important traits in carrying yourself forward during the hurt 100? Yeah, there's ups and downs for sure. Well, getting ready for it, I still didn't completely know what I was doing. Um, somebody, uh, another runner, had given me a training program, and that was nine weeks before hurt. And so I still, I still use the same Excel sheet today. And so I tracked my running for those final nine weeks on that sheet. And so now what I do with every hundred I do, I use the exact same Excel sheet and put them all on there so I can kind of compare them. But I didn't really know what I was doing. One of the best tip charlotte gave me was obviously training for the hills but make sure you train for the downhills not just the uphills but the main tip was uh if i do any stairs things like that take two at a time you're not going to be doing little steps on the way up and so i still do that to this day around my house every time i go up and down stairs it's at least two at a time and uh so lots of hill training i wound up having uh in october when i went back and did vulture bait again i got really bad shin splints and then i couldn't really run for almost a month between October and November, which is prime training for the January race. So that relegated me to just doing tons of hills and stairs. And so uh, there's a trail near my house here. There's this old falling apart now, rickety hundred step staircase in the woods that I go up and down. So I would go up and down that carrying weights and uh, just tons of hills to get ready. And uh, the my mileage, uh, not as high as a lot of other runners probably. I never had any really huge mileage weeks. And so I did build up, you know, longer runs each weekend, the longest one being, I think it was, was going to do 80K one weekend by myself, and it was a snowstorm, so I wound up doing 60K up in Durham Forest in the snow, and uh, took forever, but um, that was probably the longest run. Other than that, it's just consistency, a lot of runs. Uh, I was doing a lot of uh, weights and outside of running back then, so I'd be doing weights and a lot of legs every day and then doing running, and you need it all for her because that's just up and down, up and down. And so as for the the actual race, uh, I mean, I, I got myself ready enough. I I was pretty confident. I didn't know completely what I was getting into. But similarly with uh, back at Sulphur, when it comes to food and stuff, I'd heard the A stations were really good, but I didn't know what I was in for. So you get three drop bags at hurt at, at start finish and the other two aid stations. So I had a giant bag full of tons of food at each uh, <laughs> for each aid station, full change of clothes. So I had long sleeve, short sleeve, tank top, socks. I can't remember, probably shorts, like a full outfit at every uh, drop bag. Anyway, I wound up wearing the same outfit for the entire race. Never even took my shoes off. I didn't touch almost any of my own food. I ate everything from the aid stations. So I had these three giant drop bags full of stuff I never even used. And so live and learn. Now I barely bring anything when it comes to food for races. I just take what's there. But uh yeah, I really didn't know. I was kind of learning as I went. So I was there by myself. And so no pacer, no crew. And uh, and I still do that. I've rarely ever used a pacer or a crew. Actually, never used a pacer. And my wife has come to crew once in a while, but uh, it's usually just me at these things. And yeah, it was quite an experience. And that, the actual race, the, the community there is amazing. It's really warm, welcoming. There was a bunch of other runners there that I knew. So Charlotte was there. And then uh, Monica Schultz, who um, she has these runs out in uh, Dundas Valley. Uh, she's so she backstory. She's done her. This was going to be her 11th. She's done it 10 times uh, that 
year before she did the most hundreds ever she did 2500s in one year which since the record since been broken but anyway so i did a, a loop with her she ever the first sunday of the month through the fall and winter she would host a group run uh out in uh, dundas valley and then have everyone come back to her house for a meal after it was great so i went on one of those and got tons of tips from her and so she was at the race and so a bunch of us all went out to dinner the night before and uh so there's a lot of people there a bunch of other ontario ontario runners were there so i met a bunch of people and uh and gary robbins who had set the course record the year before i met him there so he was on crutches because he'd injured himself but he still stuck around for the whole race and uh, cheering everyone on so that was awesome and uh before the race i finally picked some trail shoes because i'd still been i ran in road shoes and then i bought some crummy old trail shoes off i used to just go to the running room warehouse and buy whatever was cheapest so i wasn't sure what to wear so i looked but what did the what did the winner last year wear and he'd been wearing these montreal mountain masochists so i just went and bought the same pair he did and so i wore those at hurt and then i wound up wearing those seven pairs later for the next few years till they discontinued them actually but uh anyway so i met a lot of great people there and then the community was awesome everyone's so helpful um monica she was only there to get her partner phil through the race she'd already done it 10 times he'd had a few attempts and not made it so her main goal was just getting him through it and then it was really hot that year uh, tons of people pulled out in the heat on loop two and so they just they threw in the towel but then she came back to pace somebody else later and phil came out and he met me at all the aid stations on the final loop to help out so that was great but uh yeah, I guess there was a point in that race where I wasn't totally sure that I'd be able to finish. I mean, I pretty much knew, uh, mainly the time cutoffs. I mean, if you have enough time coming to cutoffs, anyone can do it, I guess. The cutoff was 36 hours and it was on loop four. So after three loops, I was still feeling good. My time was decent. And then there's one stream you have to cross and uh, I, I would just skip across these rocks. And on loop four, I guess I went to jump and I didn't have the same pop in my legs anymore. I went right into the stream. And so my feet got soaked. And up until then, I'd been pretty much blister free. And then after that, I had really bad blisters for the rest of the race. That made it horrible. And so loop four felt like forever. And I, I talked to a few people who run hurt a few times and I couldn't understand it. Why would you ever want to do this again? And so there's a point like that in every race where I pretty much quit ultra running forever mid race. <laughs> I, I don't want to come back and do this again. And I also couldn't fathom doing such a hard race, how people motivate themselves to do other races after this if i go back and do sulfur or whatever how do you motivate yourself to get up and do that after you know you've accomplished something like this those are the thoughts i had during the race you feel all different after but so loop four took forever and i got through it and once i started loop five then i knew i just had to stick to it and that's when phil would meet me at the aid station and push me along by then i knew that uh that i'd be able to get through but but as for motivated motivation and stuff i mean in the middle of the night in loop four i knew tons of people were watching me because i i was so excited to do it i i sent the race tracker link to all my friends family people at work to clients everyone was watching me so i had that in mind and uh, i had this note that i still have that my my son had left for me so i got up really early to catch a flight that morning he left a note out for me and uh it said don't give up d-o-n-n-e-d don't give up and it was about 10 sentences of all about not quitting and remember family and all this and so I didn't want to wreck the note. So I took a copy of it and brought the copy with me out in my backpack during the race or a uh, waste pack. I didn't have a backpack then. And so I had a bunch of little things like that uh, kind of motivate me and keep me going during the downtimes. But yeah, once I started loop five, I knew it was just a matter of time. I just had to get there. I was ahead about an hour ahead of the cutoffs. And then so 
I think in the end, I finished 35 hours, around 35 and a half, 35, 20, maybe. And uh, the cutoff's 36. So I was overjoyed. So happy to finish that thing. It was a long, tough race. And uh, it took me a while to recover from that. My body was more beat up after that race than any other. So I recovered better once I stuck with ultra running in the years to follow, I guess. But I've never been so wrecked after a race after it was uh, after that one. It's beyond phenomenal. I mean, the heat must have been incredibly intense and the ultra running community is certainly special and that everyone's supporting everyone and wanting everyone to succeed. And when you went into the river stream on the fourth loop, it must have been terrifying as to in that moment wondering what's going to happen here and and will I be able to continue? And But from there, you were, I mean, clearly it was still difficult to manage, but you, with tenacity, the utmost mental fortitude, and with the amazing people around you, and that amazing mantra of don't give up, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. One point on that that I should point out, one of the things I did leading up to the race, when I was training and then I hurt myself and then... Like I said, a few other runners said I probably shouldn't do it. I was a little down in the dumps during training. And so what I did was one of my inspirations getting into ultra running was reading Dean Carnazzi's book. So I actually sent him an email um, just about how I was training for hurt. It was going to be my first hundred. I was in over my head and I, and uh, he emailed me back um, um, with basically that message. And he said, the best advice I can give you uh, is don't give up. Just keep going. Whatever happens, keep moving forward. And then he said the usual saying, if you can't, uh, if you can't run, walk, if you can't walk, then crawl, just don't stop, keep going. And then he said, and let me know how it goes after. And uh, so anyway, I was excited that he emailed me back and that kind of gave me a little bit of fire during my training to keep going. So yeah, that's the mantra everyone has who does these things is just, just keep going forward progress. Yeah, absolutely. And that's amazing that Dean Carnassus reached out to you, but I, I can, I've been able to tell that Dean's a very much so he's a people person. And so it's, it's expected in that sense. And yeah, ultra running is certainly a, a simple mantra at that, but it actually becomes endlessly difficult when clearly <laughs> at times everything may seem uh, that hope is lost and yeah. you, you have to find that magic and spirit and will in you to continue on. And that's a wrap on this episode of Trail Tales ARP, a running podcast from Sean Sobon and Russell the Runner. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at trail underscore tales underscore ARP. Check out our YouTube channel at Trail Tales ARP. And you can catch us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Catch you next time. Run wild. Let's go.
Stop, 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 stop.